Welcome to the JCBC Podcast. My name is Sean, and I'm so grateful that you found our podcast. Listen, the JCBC Podcast is a collection of several sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. I pray that as you find these sermons and you listen to them, they would meet you where you are in your journey. And I trust that God will do something in these words to lift up your head, if only for a little while. So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. Friends, can I ask you to turn with me, please, in your Bibles to Luke chapter 14. And as you find your way to Luke chapter 14, I just want to take a moment and say, it is not fair, I'm afraid, to the rest of the kingdom of God, the talent we have in this church. I'm sorry. I I listened. I feel like I need to apologize to our neighboring churches. I'm like, I'm sorry. But God has blessed us immensely with those who are willing to use their gifts and abilities to glorify God. Now, these days, we have been in a conversation about what it means to be around the same table, the Lord's table. And we've acknowledged that sharing space at the Lord's table can sometimes get messy, it can get crowded, and you can find yourself uh, scooted up to the table next to someone you might prefer sit in another restaurant. (laughs) Sharing space at the Lord's table can get messy, right? So can love. And here we are looking at all these passages of Scripture where we find Jesus doing amazing things, healing people, teaching people. Inspiring people, challenging people, transforming people. And curiously, they they happen so frequently, so often around tables. And we've acknowledged that there, there may be something very deliberate about that as we trace these table moments all through scripture. His ministry began at a kind of table, a wedding feast in Cana of Galilee. His earthly ministry ended with a kind of table, a last supper with those closest to him and in between those two bookends of his very short life. There are all these moments around tables that are meant to provoke something in us. They had an awareness that at the end of the age there is coming this hope that God will spread a table, a banquet, for all of the broken and all of the scattered in the world who have hunger and thirst to be put back together again. And around that table we will be invited, but Jesus keeps teaching along the way that if that day is coming, We must order our lives now in such a way that lives that day into being. We live proleptically. We reach out to something that we know is coming and we bring it into the here and now and live in the here and now as if that thing that's coming is actually breaking in. Because it is. It is. And and what I've said thus far and will continue to say is, The degree to which you and I make space at the table of our hearts for the other is the degree to which the kingdom of God breaks loose in our hearts and breaks loose in our homes and in our lives. And the story that we're going to read in just a moment here is another beautiful expression of how true that is. 
But before we get there, I've got to ask you, can I just ask you, when you go to a restaurant, where, where do you like to sit? You know, when you go to a restaurant and then they say table for how many and they say, you know, this many and you go and you sit, where do you like to sit? Because I, I have some quirks and idiosyncrasies about where I prefer to sit at a restaurant. Can I just tell you about one or two? I like to sit where I can see the door. And I like to see where I can scan the floor. And it may be for some not so noble reasons, but I gotta tell you, if somebody walks in and is up to no good, I wanna be part of the solution. Can I just leave it that way? I'm an Enneagram 2, I'm gonna help you whether you want my help or not. And so I gotta see, and, and by the way, if I'm in a booth, I gotta sit on the outside of the booth, Monty. Because if I'm sitting on the inside of the booth, it's gonna take me longer to get out and get my red cape on so I can help somebody. I got to be accessible to do the thing. If I'm on a date with my wife, you know, she's, she's foolish enough to have been dating me for 29 years now. And for 29 years, we've been going out and, and when I sit with her, I like to face her. You know why? I know some of you like to go, some of you go with your beloved and you, you sit on the same side of the table. Maybe you like to people watch, that's fine. I like to person watch and it's her. <laughs> And we have a lot of things to talk about over dinner. And so we, we, I look at her and then if we're out with another couple, I have a preference too about where I sit. I want to sit next to her looking at them so we can have conversation. If we're out with two other couples, we've designed a plan. Because it's always awkward who sits next to their spouse and who has to split up and is a boy, girl, boy, girl, or what is it? We call it triangles. See if you can imagine this. It means boy, girl, 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 boy, boy, right? So on one end of the table where the girls are, there's all kinds of wisdom and smart things being discussed. On the other side is like testosterone driven things where we talk about things that they may not be interested in. And then eventually after the appetizer, we cross pollinate and we talk a bit. It matters where you sit. Because where you sit says something about you and about who you're with. Do you know who else believed it mattered where you sit? A woman named Emily Post. Do you know this name? Emily Post was born in the 1870s, lived into the 1960s, and she wrote like this quintessential volume, this book called Etiquette, that is now in its 18th edition. It came out in 1922. This year is the 100th anniversary of etiquette where she talks on and on in great detail about the way you are supposed to do things. Thank you, thank you. For example, how you send an invitation to an event, how you respond to an invitation to the event, uh, how you greet one another, when do you bow, curtsy, handshake. In fact, can I give you just one example of the detail with which she speaks of the etiquette of shaking hands. This is what she says. Who does not dislike a boneless hand? extended as though it were a spray of seaweed or, or a miniature boiled pudding. It is equally annoying to have one's hand clutched aloft and grotesquely affection, with a grotesque affection shaken violently sideways as though it were being used to clean a spot out of the atmosphere. 
What woman does not wince at the vice-like grip that cuts her rings into her flesh and temporarily paralyzes every finger? Wow. Fred Henderson has not read. Emily Post, Fred. I got some recommended reading for you, my, my brother. She goes on to talk about what it, what it means to properly conduct yourself in social settings, and she speaks a lot about, wait for it, table manners. And she talks about what a place setting should look like, and she speaks about which fork to use and when, and how to use a spoon with your soup so that you, you dredge it outward so that it drips into the bowl as it comes to your lips. And if you are drinking out of a bowl, you can tip the bowl to get the last sip, but if it's in a cup, you can then lift up the cup and sip on and on. What to do with your napkin when you leave the restaurant, what to do with your napkin when you temporarily leave the table and plan on returning. On and on, because there's a right way to do things. But of all the things she's talked about, you know what she talked about most? Seating arrangements. Because it matters where you sit. The host is in charge of telling those who come where they sit. And the guest with the most esteem or honor or value is to sit next to the host. That you could, in a way, stand back and take a snapshot of the table in Emily Post's mind and see who matters most to the host. See, in her opinion, it matters where you sit because where you sit says something about you and who you're with. Jesus knew this too. Jesus was invited to have dinner in the home of a leader of the Pharisees and when he showed up, he sees all these people posturing, posturing over where they should sit and who gets to sit where and closest to the host and who has the seat of honor. He sees all of this and takes the opportunity to teach them a first century lesson of table etiquette. But then what he does is he takes that lesson and elevates it to the level of parable to teach them a valuable truth about etiquette in the kingdom of God. Luke chapter 14 beginning in verse one. On one occasion when Jesus was going to the house of a leader of the Pharisees to eat a meal on the Sabbath, they were watching him closely. Can we just stop for there, for just, just for a moment, just pull the car over? Luke is so detailed with his telling of the Jesus story that he packs so much within such a short space it's worth unpacking. He's eating at the home of a Pharisee. Last week, uh, I talked to you about how Jesus eats at all kinds of tables, and it doesn't surprise us why Jesus eats alongside tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes and and thieves. That doesn't disturb us because we've kind of come to expect that from Jesus, right? But what surprises us from time to time is that he chooses to share a meal, to sit at a table with even those who represent his own oppression, and those who would lay traps before him and because Jesus believed that the table of transformation is where anybody can change. So he's at the home of a Pharisee, but not just the Pharisee, a leader of the Pharisees on the Sabbath. 
The Sabbath meal was unlike any other meal. It was like, it was a different kind of meal. The Sabbath meal had more ritual and precedent and symbolic power. It had more etiquette required. And to be invited into someone's home on the Sabbath, on Friday night, after you see the first couple, three stars in the sky, it was a signal of honor and respect and value. It was a great, a great gift to be invited in. But we're told in the very beginning of this story that they were watching him closely. What would he do to step over the line, to bend the rules or even break the rules? Would he be one who broke theological etiquette? In other words, on this night, the night that he shared a table with this motley crew, this mixture of humanity, the stakes were very high. We continue reading in verse two. Just then, in front of him, there was a man who had dropsy. More about that in a moment. And Jesus asked the lawyers and Pharisees, is it lawful to cure people on the Sabbath or not? I mean, he knew what was in their minds. To work on the Sabbath was a violation of the etiquette of the law of Moses, but healing people was considered work. So he asked before he proceeded, just as a rhetorical device, is it lawful to heal people on the Sabbath? They, they were silent. So Jesus took him and healed him and sent him away. Then he said to them, come on, if one of you has a child or even an ox, that has fallen into a well, will you not immediately pull it out on the Sabbath day? And they could not reply to this. Jesus has barely gotten in the door. He hasn't had an appetizer. He's barely found his seat and he's already confronted by a moment of crisis that would require his action and this moment would frame the entire night. This man had dropsy. We don't know who the man was. There are many theories as to why he was even there in the first place. Some have said, well, maybe he was just an intruder, someone who unexpectedly showed up because he had heard Jesus was near and Jesus had a reputation that was growing and many who had needs would begin to follow to have their needs met or their, their ails cured. But it doesn't say that. We don't know if he was or not. Some others have said, well, it may not have been a, an uninvited guest. It may have been one of the other Pharisees invited to the Sabbath meal who happened to be living with this condition, dropsy. And when he is healed unexpectedly that night, Jesus sends him to go talk to his family and celebrate the good news. Is that possible? Maybe. Maybe. It's also possible that it's a trap. It's also possible that the Pharisees could have planted this guy there in his vulnerable situation in order to trap Jesus into doing something that would breach etiquette and cause him to be found in violation of the Sabbath. We don't know. It doesn't say it, and like I've said before, when scripture in places is curiously ambiguous, it is a device by the writers of scripture to invite the reader in and ask not so much where'd that guy come from and why is he there, but why am I here? 
And, and what place do I have at this table? But I think that the most compelling part of this entire story is not where the guy came from or what his name was or, or who put him there, but the name of his disease. Now, in other gospels, sometimes the disease is not identified clearly. Jesus heals all kinds of people. But remember, we're in the gospel of Luke, and Luke is a doctor who gives greater detail of the condition that he is suffering from. It's dropsy, or the longer name is uh, hydropsy. It means an unusual swelling of the body a retention of water that can become painful and inhibit life. And, and this man is filled with fluid, but ironically, if you have dropsy, or as we refer to it nowadays, edema, you can be filled with water, but still thirsty for water. It comes with a great thirst. To have something so abundant within you and still thirst for that thing That's why in the first century, in ancient Greece, even before the first century, dropsy was used as a metaphor to describe greed and wealth and pride and arrogance because it means I have enough, more than enough of one thing, but I want more and more and more and I find it just fascinating that on the night that Jesus is invited on a Sabbath meal with this Pharisee, there is someone there with dropsy and he heals him physically. He cures the man and he goes away healed. But I find it interesting because I think Luke is attempting to let you know that this guy, Jesus, is one who not only has the capacity to heal us physically, but he has actually come to address a greater problem, which is a, a dropsy of the soul where we are swollen on the interior with pride and arrogance, a kind of edema of the soul in which we struggle because we want more and more and more and more and we will climb and contend and compete and compare our way to the best seat at the table. So Luke is saying, yeah, he healed the guy of a physical infirmity, but he's really here, here to heal you and me of way more than that. And so the story continues, and and Jesus sees what he's up against. He's up against a room full of those who have the edema of the soul. We continue. When he noticed how the guests chose the places of honor, he told them a parable. They were choosing all the best seats. He said, when you are invited by someone to a wedding banquet, say, Do not sit down at the place of honor in case someone more distinguished than you has been invited by the host and and the host who invited both of you (laughs) may come and say to you, give this person your place and then in disgrace, you would start to take your lowest, the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit down, down down at the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you for all who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. 
to take a snapshot of a table in the first century would reveal to us the same thing that we sometimes will have revealed if we take a snapshot at a table at Emily Post's home. (laughs) Who is at the top of the pecking order and who is not? In the first century, the places of honor as described in the text are those who are to the right and to the left of the host. They had the greatest value, incidentally, by the way, on the side, not for not, let me tell you this, this is why. One day in another place in the gospel, Jesus just about loses it because he's walking along serving those with greatest need and he hears two of his disciples in the back arguing with themselves about who was the greatest. In one place, John and James come to Jesus with a question. In a different place, Matthew has John and James coming. I think it's Mark who has the mother of John and James, which makes it even better, you know. Will you make it so that my sons will sit both on your right and on your left in the kingdom that is to come? See, down inside every one of us, there is this kind of innate drive to climb, compete, compare, contend till we get to the top. The trouble is, trouble is, in the kingdom of God, the top is at the bottom. Those who exalt themselves and spend all the better part of the energies of your one small life pursuing the top, those who exalt themselves will be humbled. Those who humble themselves will be exalted. And in one way, Jesus is really just trying to give them a first century tip of table manners so you don't embarrass yourself. You show up at a banquet, you take the best seat, and someone comes to you and says, I'm sorry, but can you just get all your things and get out of the seat of someone more important than you? Now in front of everybody, you have to go down and sit at an embarrassing spot, and everybody's talking about you. Or you could humble yourselves. And when you show up, take the lowest seat, and then maybe, maybe they come to you and say, what are you doing here? Gather your things. You need to be at the other end of the table. See, in the kingdom of God, the way up is down. The way up is down. They who exalt themselves will be humbled. They who humble themselves will be exalted. It's like the pastor, the young, young pastor at his first pastorate, it's his first pulpit, and it's his first sermon, and he is raring to go. He's prepared for this thing for weeks. <laughs> he doesn't know, starting week two, you gotta do it every week. <laughs> he's prepared this thing for weeks, and he's so raring to go. He's locked, he's loaded, he's ready to fire, and he gets up into the pulpit, he walks up. He's so confident, he's so cocky and he preaches and he falls flat on his face I mean it tanks it is an embarrassment he fumbles the ball and and he can't recover I mean he he tells jokes but misfires the the punchline he he tells stories but but he doesn't tell them well and the exegesis that he tries to bring out of the scriptures is like a scrambled mess and nobody can make sense of any of it so he finishes and he Goes down the steps with his head hung low and his shoulders 
slumped and you can tell the life was just out of him and he sits on the front pew while they sing some music afterwards and he sits there sinking into the pew in absolute despair and humility and humiliation and an old deacon who'd been there for years, sitting right behind him, and he'd been through his fair share of pastors, <laughs> reaches up and puts his hand on his shoulder and whispers in his ear, son, if you had gone up the way that you came down, you would have come down the way you went up. They who exalt themselves will be lowered. They who lower themselves, humble themselves, will be exalted because in the kingdom of God, the way up is down. A few years ago, we were in Washington, D.C. My family's on vacation there. We got the boys, Laura, and we're seeing everything, all the wonderful things in D.C., including the Smithsonian Museums. And we're in one of the museums and it's there, we're there during a time where they're renovating and so much is under construction and there's rerouting and there's detouring and we are on like floor two but we wanna see an exhibit on floor three so we try to find it but the stairs in that particular part of the museum are shut down for repair. The stairs going up. So we, we go to find an elevator but the elevator in that shaft is shut down. So we go to the place of information and I ask, how do we get to this exhibit? It's on the third floor. And she basically said, you can't get there from here. She said, these are closed here, but there is an elevator that does go to the third floor, but you can't access it from the second floor. She said, what you have to do is go down these stairs to the first floor Go underneath where we are, walk a little bit, and then you'll find another elevator that goes all the way up to the third floor, and you'll be where you need to be. And it occurred to me in that moment, as it occurs to me now, sometimes the only way to get there, the only way to go up, is by going down. That's life in the kingdom of God. And beloved, can I just remind us of one important thing? That is the entire incarnation in a nutshell. That Christ himself didn't just impose an expectation upon us to humble ourselves and he will exalt us. He demonstrated what it looked like. So the apostle Paul is writing to this church struggling to survive at Philippi. And they're fighting with each other, especially two of its members. And there's some arrogance and pride. They have a kind of edema of the soul. And he addresses them and says, don't forget who you serve. He said, look, in the second chapter, he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or empty conceit, but in humility of mind, learn to consider the other as more important than yourselves. Have the same mind in you, which was in Christ Jesus, who, although he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited or grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave and being found in human likeness, being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now watch this. Therefore, 
the passage continues, God so highly exalted him and gave him the name that's above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's Philippians in the second chapter. It's an old hymn that the church had been singing that Paul cuts and pastes into his letter to remind them of something they should never forget. The way up is down. Notice the gradations of descent. Have this mind in you that was also in Christ Jesus who, watch, although it was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but humbled himself, emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being found in human form, being found in human likeness, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bend in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The way up is down, and the only question I have to ask you this morning is, are you in a situation right now are you in a space in your life where for whatever reason you're, you're feeling compelled to climb, to compete, to contend, to compare your life to someone else? Are you at an impasse with somebody at work and you've locked horns with them and neither one of you are giving up? Are you at an impasse with someone in your home? Is it possible that someone with whom you share a table in your house is on one end in one corner of the rink and you're on the other and neither one of you are gonna give. You don't wanna give up any ground at all. I just want to remind you that we who are in the way of Jesus are the ones who understand the way up is down. To humble ourselves, taking the form of something lower than we think we deserve because when we do, when we realize that the way up is down, we are free, free. Because in that moment, it is God who lifts us up. The story concludes with verse 12. He said also to the one who had invited him, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your neighbors in case they may invite you in return and and you would be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Beloved, the last thing I wanna share with you today is one more quote from our friend, Emily Post, who surprisingly understands that etiquette is not just about table manners. This is what she said. Nothing is less important than which fork you use. Etiquette is the science of living. It embraces everything. It is ethics. It is honor. Etiquette is not a rigid code of manners. It is simply how persons' lives touch one another. Jesus wants us to so assume a posture of humility with those around us that our lives touch one another 
at the most vulnerable human level. So invite into your life and around the table of your heart the poor, the cripple, the lame, and the blind. You know why? Because at the end of the day, one day we will see that it was us. That we are the poor in spirit, impoverished in the soul. We are the crippled. The crippled from our own sin and mistakes that we've made, the decisions that we've lived with, we are crippled to move forward on our own. We are the lame. We cannot walk because we have been wounded by life. I don't know what has left you lame, but until you recognize that you are among the lame and that we are all among the blind, the spiritually blind, until we realize that we are the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, we'll keep on scraping for the top, searching to find the very best seat at the table, but when we recognize who we are and what our great need is for our holy host, one day he will come to us in our lowest state and say, no, 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 friend, come up higher and we will be raised. (laughs) 